Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Bryce Roberts is the founder of IndieVC. IndieVC is a 12-month program designed to fund and support founders on a path to profitability. Previous to IndieVC, Bryce Roberts co-founded OATV, one of the very earliest seed investing firms. Before that, he was an associate at Wasatch Venture Fund, and he also co-founded the Open Source Business Conference back in 2004. Bryce, thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to have you. Actually, the last time I think we hung out was in a in a Bar, bar in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. When we were just starting. You were, yeah, I don't even think, it, you know. I, it was I like think week it was one just for us. Bar- I think. Yeah, barely getting started. Yeah. Stileman was still making fun of us that we were trying to be VCs back then. <laughs> That's right. So we had to move out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's um, we're not far, though. Anyway, I'm so excited to, to do this with you. Uh, we have interviewed a bunch of LPs and VCs now yeah. on, on Origins. And oh, big fan. Indie VC is different. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Decidedly. Yeah. It's very different. So I'm I'm really excited to um to talk to you about that. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background and Utah and hmm. all that good stuff? Yeah. So um grew up in Portland, Oregon, you know, okay. as a kid. Uh it was a special time in Portland, I thought at least. I'd probably everybody thinks that when they grow up, but there was something really unique that was happening there and it was fun to be a part of it. I was not into school. I was okay. like kind of a I was like a skateboarder yep. kind of kid who um who really resisted a lot of of um conventional wisdom. And you know, it, it, it you know, I don't I don't know if you grew up skateboarding or ever got involved with it, but it rewires your brain in kind of interesting ways when you really kind of get under the covers and I think it started me on this journey of kind of always being hyper aware of my context and my situation and this you know, was like punk punk rock era yeah it was like right? late, it was I like mean, late was 80s early Seattle. 90s so i'm like yeah i was not a grunge guy okay. but it was okay. like it was and i'm wildly dating myself and everybody who's gonna listen to this is like man that dude's like so out of touch but it was it was like it was a moment where um and it was a part of a part of my growing up that i think about a lot because it's it it reflects in the work that I do and maybe the way that I think about the work that I do. And that was 
you know, you become so aware, you, you know, when you're, when you're like, a, when you're a skateboarder, your whole mind is wired to like go into a city and you are just on the hunt for like, you're right. paying attention to every little detail to like the wax that's on mm-hmm. a ledge to like paint that's on a handrail to like a bump that's in the side. Like you're just paying attention to everything and you're looking for, and I think that put me on this, like, I'm just constantly like looking for dots to connect and mm-hmm. trying to figure out like where, what's coming next. Like what are the, what are the things that are coming? And so I didn't really figure out that that was a skill or something that, that helped to define or shape me in any way until a lot later on. But that's kind of where I got started. I went to, you know, I was, like I said, I wasn't a great student. I didn't love school. And so I kind of bumped around to a bunch of different colleges. I ended up graduating um, with a degree in philosophy from a school called BYU, Brigham mm-hmm. Young University out mm-hmm. of Provo, Utah. Met my wife there. We ended up staying in Utah and that was not the plan at all. But you know, there's probably a bunch of parts of my life that weren't necessarily that plan was I was going to be an attorney. Mm. Yeah. I was going to go to law school. So I, you know, I got my philosophy degree. I was like, you know, I was into it. I was president of the the law program at at my school. Like I was super. So at some point you got into school. Oh yeah. I guess in in college. Yeah. I I did a freshman year and then I took two years off to do, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, Mormon. And so you take these two years off okay. and you do your, you know, yeah. you can do these missions. And so yeah. I got sent on a two year mission. Okay, And so I came back and I was, you know, I got married super young and had to take care of my family. So I was working, I was going to school. We had babies while I was still an undergrad. Wow. Like it was just, wow. Okay. No, it was, it's a fairly unconventional path. And so um, while I was doing all of this, I also was I had always been pulled to entrepreneurship. It was something I always wanted to do and to be. And I thought, you know, in my early 20s brain that like a law degree would be a great asset to have going into business. Like, And so I really latched onto that and and that was the plan. And then when I graduated, I decided, you know, I, I grew up so fast, meaning I went from you know, I went from no responsibilities to being married, having a kid, and in undergrad, I was like, right. man, I need like a year to just kind of figure out, Wrong. like, yeah, just go explore some yeah. things before I dive right into another three years of school. And so we ended up starting a company. Um, it was a ski company that was oh, actually wow. manufacturing skis. It was just some some partners of mine okay. and I in Jackson Hole. Okay. We were going to be, at the time, this will date it, we were going to be the Dell computers nice. of skis Fuck where you yeah. could come in and customize everything yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. So that company's still around and still doing its thing. Really? But it got, it like started- What was the company called? It's called Igneous. Igneous, Igneous okay. It's still around. Wow. But it, it like scratched that itch. I was like, it was this experience of building something in an industry that hadn't ever been, you know, hadn't really, there hadn't been right. a new entrant for probably 15 years. Right. And so even though it wasn't a great industry to be in in terms of scale, it was like an itch that I could scratch that said, okay, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I think from our family's perspective, we took, you know, we took that risk early on and we were like, oh, it didn't, like, it didn't crush us. Like, you know, it, 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 we, we aren't millionaires now, but we certainly didn't, like, mm-hmm. I was actually more employable when I decided that that wasn't a business I wanted to keep working on. I w- it was so I was so much more employable after that to go do something, and so I ended up joining another startup in Utah, so I could stop driving to Jackson Hole every couple of weeks. All right, and that was a company that was doing um, online recruiting. So basically, okay. what Indeed does now, they were doing back then, and we okay. ended up selling that company to Monster.com. Okay, in uh, in two thousand one. How did you meet 
Tim Riley. Um, Tim O'Reilly, sorry. Yeah, sorry. so my jump from rec- the, that startup um, into venture was I, I from, from there I went into a venture fund um, okay. and I worked there for four years. And while I was there- Also I, in Utah? Yeah, also in okay. Utah. So it was uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson used to have these affiliate funds. Yeah, right. So here in town, they had something right. called Gotham. The very first one was in Salt Lake City, Utah called Wasatch Ventures. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I joined- Was there a startup? Community and it was Salt it was a, it was a weird time. Okay. It was a right. Was I guess I guess it was dot com. I mean, this, right? yeah, it was like dot com yeah. fallout. There yeah. were there were probably three or four early stage active tech VC funds okay. in Utah. At that okay. Time. Utah's a funny right. market. We can yeah. we can talk about that later if you want. But I went to work for this team for four years and 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 um, really enjoyed my time there. But while I was there, and this was out of the basically in the dot com bust. Yeah, this period. is two thousand one, yeah. two thousand two. Yeah. So were you guys actually doing anything? We were trying to raise their third okay. fund at the time. Okay, and so I got really involved in their fundraising, which was for me like such right. a just, just such an eye opening experience. Yeah. Really learned a lot about how to kind of package up a strategy and a fund that, yep. you know, institutional LPs could wrap their heads right. around. But then what you also the, had What this, were the biggest learnings there, you think? Um, that institutional LPs don't love regional stories. Okay. You know, and so, you know, like historically the returns have come from, they have, they've come from the coasts. Yep. And so if you don't have at least some story for that and ties into your geography, I think, you know, there is a, there's an incredibly high hurdle, at least back then, that you had to clear if you were not going to be in San Francisco or New yeah. York. And so there was this kind of emerging ecosystem of regional LPs. And mm. so you had these kind of tax incentive, you had these like um, mm. locally formed and funded LP groups that if you were willing to, say, set up an office in New Mexico, you can have, you know, you can get a pretty right. reasonable commitment right. from them. Right. And so there were, you know... I. I think it put me in this position where I became highly skeptical of of, of a regional strategy. Huh. Interesting. And, I, and, and, having, and, and having actually like pitched it, yeah, you having, became having, skeptic, a skeptic oh, yourself. Right. One hundred percent. Wow. Okay. And and having implemented it, like right. I could see that, you know, you can you can pick a handful of constraints to put on yourself as a fund, but when you say we are early stage, we're only investing in like Utah and the Southwest. And we're only going to invest in technology. All of a sudden, your universe of possible investments gets narrowed down to realistically one company a year, maybe two right. companies a year that would kind of cross that hurdle. Right. And so, I just think I think there's a way to do it. I just don't think at that time that that the folks that were doing it were were that they had a defensible strategy for doing it. Yep. Right. Because then your your whole story has to be to an institutional LP. There's amazing companies getting coming out of. Utah or wherever, and we're going to be in every single one of them. And if you're not, that's a really hard story to tell to LPs. And, you know, I look across the landscape of most regional funds and they aren't in Mm, those companies. Like those best companies go to the coast to raise money. And so I think that's, I think it's starting to change, but I think certainly while I was doing it and, and up until recently, I think that was a tough story to sell to LPs. Mm. Uh, so how did you so meet Tim, Tim O'Reilly? O'Reilly? Yeah, and um, could you tell us actually just for those folks that don't maybe don't know who is Tim O'Reilly? Yeah, so Tim <laughs> Tim is uh, the founder of O'Reilly Media. Yeah. Tim is in the kind of lexicon of tech people who've really you know kind of put together impactful, if not an impactful business, which he's certainly built an impactful business. He really kind of 
is an amazing storyteller around where technology is going. Yeah. And an incredible, you know, he, he kind of reads the tea leaves. I mean, there's been plenty of articles written about him that call him like the oracle of whatever, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. he, he, he just has an incredible sense for where things are going, why it's important and what you should be paying attention to. So as a publisher, you know, he made the conscious decision that rather than go write the books on the big hits of technology that would clearly be sellers, he went out and said, like, what, what are the things that you should be paying attention to? What voices should we be amplifying? And so, you know, he, as a publisher, he was the first person to write about, you know, Unix and Linux. And, I mean, actually kind of organized the, the, the conference where people coined the term yeah. open source. He coined yeah. the term Web 2.0. He yeah. coined the maker, you know, the term maker. Yeah. So it's like this whole kind of university built himself, you know, around his ideas that people really kind of latched onto and... You know, it was just kind of amazing at spotting like, oh, the things that people are spending their spare time on, that's the stuff mm. that ends up being, you know, impactful mm. down yeah. the road. And so while I was at the last fund, I'm obviously sitting in Utah. I'm not seeing, you know, I'm seeing regional deals, but I'm not necessarily seeing the best things that are happening. And mm -hmm. so I got really interested in open source software mm -hmm. as an investment theme. And so I said, if we're go if we're going to go down this rabbit hole, then we probably need to be seeing and plugged into the best, most interesting people. And so I decided uh, with a partner to start uh, a conference. Okay. So we started a conference called the okay. Open Source Business Conference. Okay. And uh, we invited Tim to speak. Yep. And Tim came and spoke. He was great. Our conference ended up being, you know, well-timed. So, you know, Tim was in the conference business. He stepped into, you know, the ballroom at the Western St. Francis and it was standing room only. And he's like, who are these people I've never heard of? They're in Utah. Wow. Like they filled wow. this whole room. We can't fill a room for our right. conferences. Wow. So he tried to buy us. He tried okay. to buy our conference. So that's okay. kind of how the, the relationship started. We ended up, we actually didn't sell it to Tim. We sold it to a group out of Boston called IDG. But that started a conversation about me understanding a little bit more about him, about his investing that he'd been doing through O'Reilly Media. And it got us riffing on like open source is only one part of this much bigger story mm. that's unfolding. And like, what, what does it look like if we play it forward three or four years? And so that's when, you know, he was working on the Web 2.0 stuff that was going on. And we started to recognize that there was this different kind of company, different kind of entrepreneur mm. that was coming up and they could potentially require or enable a different kind of investment vehicle to support them. Hmm. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the start of OATV, which yeah. you guys co-founded together yep. and, and a third partner too, right? Yeah, Mark, Mark Jacobson. And you founded that firm pretty early yeah. in this current cycle. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 2005, right? Yeah. So we, um, yeah, that's right. Had Tim, had Tim made investments before? Yeah. So they, and Mark, yeah, what they okay. had done is they'd pooled some internal capital okay. at O'Reilly and they had funded, like they were the first uh, investor in uh, blogger.com. Okay. Right. Okay. So they, so they had made they, yeah, they, some angel investments. They made some angel investments. Things. So they had a, they had a small but interesting yeah. uh, investment track record. Yeah. And I was a junior schmuck from a fund that I've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good on you. <laughs> um, how did you start that that firm? And did you you stayed in Utah? Yeah, I stayed in they Utah. They were they were in San Francisco. They were in San Francisco. Yeah. So Tim and Mark had worked together at O'Reilly. They had been investing together th off of O'Reilly's balance sheet and some of their own. You know, like Mark had thrown in some capital and they yep. kind of done a small fund. And they, you know, Blogger was a was a great return for them. Yep. They got pre IPO yep. Google shares. As and that was Ed that. Williams' first company. Ed Williams' yeah. first company. Ed worked yeah. at O'Reilly. 
So oh, that was his that first right? job. If you, okay. if you oh, kind wow. of watch his, when wow. he moved okay. from like Ohio, he took a job at O'Reilly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that. So they had gotten to know him through yeah. that. And then, but they'd invested in a few other things that had actually worked yeah. out really well. I mean, what essentially what the, the brand that they had built was like all of these misunderstood technologists who didn't know any VCs, hmm. but who knew they were onto something would come to Tim and historically they would buy books from him. Right, and I think I think it was Mark Cuban who said to Tim, like, "Wow, this is amazing! I, your books were the heart of wow. what we built at right. Broadcast.com." Right. Wow. And Tim's wow. like, "And I got to sell you books." Wow. So maybe you it's a I mean? little similar to kind of like Paul Graham I think blogging that's right. in the early days. I think that's starting right. Y Combinator, yeah, yeah. And nerds, and totally. Tech and, folks and there wasn't there right. wasn't this like approachable, accessible yeah. venture yeah. ecosystem, right? Yeah. And so. You know, they started doing some small angel style investments that worked out well. We got talking about, you know, if you looked at the the thread that he was pulling on around Web 2.0, you look at kind of like this new universe of acquisitions. So their 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 sale of Blogger was not a huge sale in terms of a top line number, but because they got pre Google, you know, pre IPO shares, uh, it ended up just uh, being a massive return right, from them. Right. And at the time, you know, Flickr was selling for what, 20, 30 million, yeah, somewhere in there. Like that, yeah. You had blog lines that was selling. You had this group of companies yeah. that were just starting to um, come up that were showing, like, oh, there's this kind of healthy sub $100 yeah. million dollar acquisition market. Like, there's. Which was, piece. I guess, at its core, Web 2.0, yeah. social web. That was, that was a big part of like yeah. these lightweight web based applications. Yeah. They don't require a ton yeah. of funding. There isn't like some massive uh, technical breakthrough. Yeah. And they're free. And they're free. Yeah. And so, but there's also a healthy appetite from the larger players to kind of pull these companies in. And mm-hmm. so the thought was, you know, this trend was small but growing, you know, in terms of the tools that were going to make entrepreneurship a whole lot more accessible. I mean, Joe, Joe Krauss wrote what I feel like was like the seminal post of that time, which you, I think he probably wrote it in 2004, 2005, which was like, this is why everything's going to be different. Hmm. And the post laid out essentially the seed strategy that we were starting to go raise a fund around. Hmm. And that whole concept is now conventional wisdom where it was like, you know, the cost of technology, right. the accessibility of it. Right. This was like just as S3 was getting spun up from Amazon. Yeah. And so you could see like there was this big confluence of enablers that were coming together. The question then was like the only funding vehicles are angels and these traditional venture funds that needed to write 5 million plus yeah. checks. And they also needed these kind of massively outsized outcomes yeah. to drive returns. And so we thought there was this kind of sweet spot in there for a right-sized fund that could deploy capital differently, but could also kind of reap the benefits of optionality that entrepreneurs give up when they go raise so much money right up front. Yeah. And so that was, that was the- Was uh, it hard to raise? Yeah, it took us two years. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. it took us two years to raise. Okay, it. so we got we got started raising it. The first close with angels was actually, you know, or, or like in, individual LPs was, and actually that's just because like a hard. lot of the concepts that you were describing were new. Well, people people I, didn't. Fully I would say it was it. also probably we probably thought the institutional market would be easier than it was. Okay, meaning like there there was some like movement that they were doing first time funds. Yeah. So we raised 35 pretty quickly from individuals. Okay. And so we had, you know, I mean, given Tim's network, network and our right, network's right, like, right, right. you know, there were just plenty of people who saw the same thing we were seeing. And then once we closed that, then all of our venture friends were saying, oh, this is, this is like really interesting for our LPs. You should be talking to them. And so we spent the second year just okay. like beating our heads against yeah. the institutional LP wall, which, 
you can appreciate. I mean, you you and Alex live yeah. in the same town. You like here we are telling a story of a fund that like we don't even know each other very well. We've never worked together. We've never invested together. We live in separate places. Like every single red flag mm. is just flying. Mm. But thankfully, I think there was enough curiosity at least that people took some flyers on us early on. And that so was so given all the given all those risks, given all the unknowns, how did you guys make it work? You know, I think we were just really, really committed to making it work. I mean, I think they're like we as a partnership, you know, Mark and I are two very different people. I mean, when we were raising the fund, I would people would ask how we know each other. And back then I used to be able to joke that I was his son because he was so much <laughs> older than I he looked so much older than I was. Yeah. You know, it was just he's you know, he has a totally different like experience level than I do. He's yeah. like very systematic and operational. I'm way more high level and uh, more public facing. So there were all of these things that I think it took us the better part of, I mean, it probably took the better part of seven years. It probably took me moving to California for our second fund for us to really kind of get in our group. Okay. Oh, you did move ultimately. I did. We did ultimately okay. move. So the first and you lived fund, there for how long? Two years. In California. And in then California. moved back to Utah. Yeah. So we, did, start, we started in Salt Lake. Yeah. I did five years there. Okay. And then at, for our second fund, which we raised in 2010, that's when I moved. So our first fund, we closed it at the end of 2006. And then we, I mean, technically, I think our first close was 2005. It was five years between our first fund and our second fund. Wow. Which, you know, you can appreciate. That's a long. Yeah. But, I mean, you can also, you know what happened in 2006, 2007, right? Like the whole market completely okay. shifted. Right. So we, you know, right. we slowed our role. Right. Um, right. You know, we were probably and you basically survived that survived financial that. crisis, and then out of that raised, yeah, out of that raised. How did you learn how to be an investor? I feel like I'm still learning how to be yeah. an investor. Yeah, you know like, what I mean. Like, like, like you know, I guess they had done some angel investing, but they hadn't. Money. They were also not institutional VCs. No. Your partners, no. yeah. So, who did you learn from? How did you learn? I mean, I think I had the huge benefit of a lot of rope at the first fund that I was at. Mm -hmm. So it was a small fund, you mm -hmm. know, very small right. partnership. Right. But most of them actually didn't have much more experience in venture investing than I did. Most okay. of them had joined kind of during the dot-com heyday. And so most of those lessons weren't wildly applicable. But in that, they gave me like a ton of rope. And we also were in Utah, but we had this like funny relationship with DFJ where I had access to okay. Tim Draper and Steve Jurvetson and that whole partnership of people who actually were like, super experienced investors. And so I think seeing the world through some of their experiences was hugely helpful. You know, I tried to spend as much of time, much time with those folks as I could get. Um, a lot of trial and error. I mean, like I said, I still feel like I'm figuring out because I do think there's a part of me that had always wanted, like I looked at the people who were at big funds who got to work with like the legends. Right. And I, you know, I would like pine for that a little bit. Right, like, yeah. Wow, that'd be yeah. amazing to have... John Doerr yeah, or you know Mike too. Moritz kind of take you under their wing and yeah. just show you how it's done. But interestingly, when you spend time with folks at those funds, you know, at a certain point, you're kind of like getting relatively close to the level that yeah. everybody else is when on. When you look back at maybe those early years, like the first fund, what was one thing you look back and you're like, oh my God, I totally got that right. It might've been luck or whatever, but like, but like, yeah. or my instincts were right. Yeah, and that worked out. And then one thing that was like, "Holy shit, I would never do that again." That was a total fuck up. Oh, so I'll, let, me, let me. I'll go to the last one. Okay, and that the latter one, which was, "What did we? What wouldn't we do again?" And it's going to feel counterintuitive, but we were too disciplined. 
Mm. We were too, like we were, we were very laser Mm -hmm. focused on here's what we told LPs we were going to do. And we're really not going to depart from that. Mm -hmm. And as a result, like we missed a lot of really Mm -hmm. amazing. I mean, think about like, you're talking about a time when there was hardly any competition for seed funding. Yeah. You know, almost no competition with traditional venture. And you had Twitter and Etsy and like all of these things happening. And there was such a small pool. And yet we were so, we were so militant what? about ownership. About or? what, yeah, we, we had a very strong strategy that we told people. So for instance, Twitter, you know, my partner, Right. Funded Dev's last company. Like we <laughs> right. had access. Like right. Fred was in our conference right. room. Like when we were talking through like what the deal should yeah. look like and what what, yeah. what we knew the deal they would take versus the one he was mm-hmm. proposing. Right. Like that was in our conference room. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what? we had this Too thing. Too expensive? Where, no, well, no. Well, we, we, there were two things we got bid on. One, we were a lead investor that yep. wanted a certain percentage yep. and was going to take a board seat. Yep. And if it didn't fit that, which was fine, we had this kind of back pocket that we could pull out of, which was we do angel investing for Tim. Yeah. But the um, filter for those was it had to be a, a, a named top tier fund that was leading the round. And USV at, that at time the time was not, was not wow. a lead top tier fund. Wow. So despite, wow. you know, Fred was like, Fred was one of those people who in the early days, like there wasn't, we met, you know, literally across the street in 2005. They had just, he and Brad had just barely closed their fund. Like they were incredible mentors to me. Yeah. But here we were looking at this thing that just barely fell outside of our criteria. Yeah. And as a result, we missed probably a 300X, 400X return. Yeah. On, yeah, we, we probably could it's have put tough. in- The first funds are tough because we, yeah. we, we, we- You probably felt it. I feel very similarly. Yeah. I think if anything, looking back on the last four years, four and a half years of notation, the one, I don't think we were quite opportunistic yeah. as, as we should have been. And it's because it's our first fund. We're so sensitive to, we're going to do the things yeah. that we told our LPs or that we're going to do. Yeah. That was the deal. It was the deal. And you do sometimes forget that really, like, ultimately your job is to provide good returns. At the end of the day, it's yeah. about. And here, but here's the problem. It's tough on those wrong, first funds, if, though. But if you're wrong, like, yeah, it's yeah, one thing if it's Twitter. You're done. Because you can justify it yeah. in so many yeah. scenarios with so much less data. And Twitter could have played out a hundred different ways. And if it had played out in a way that, like, the thing goes off the rails and everybody yeah. loses their money— it's very different to explain that to LPs than like, hey, we were, you know, we saw something nobody else saw early on, and we really, you know, it, it's yeah, just totally. So, so you're it, trying, like, you're also just trying to survive so as a, as a firm. Well, yeah, I mean, we're in the right? middle of raising a fund. Yeah, how are we going to go to our LPs and say, oh yeah, we just did this brand new deal, and it looks nothing like what we just sold you yep. that we were going to be doing. Yeah, but right? please, the can we have some more money? Yeah, can we please have more? Yeah, right? just, yeah, you know. yeah. So that, 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 one, was a, that was probably the mistake about, I made really early on. How about maybe? Was, and did you course correct for that over time? I think we've tried. Yeah, yeah. I think we've. Yeah. I think we've gotten better. I think yeah. we. I think. I think. There's a part of it where you get to earn that, yep. right? Like with your yep. LPs, you get to earn that trust. Once you've once you've posted a, some successes in that first fund or yep. two, you get a lot more rope yeah. to like yeah. kind of explore. And I so I think we've tried to do a much we've we've been a lot better at that. Um, yeah. One thing that you were like, man, our instincts were totally right. I think our instincts around seed were like right, spot yeah, yeah on, true. right. Like true. I I think that 
the opportunity played out way faster and way bigger than we ever, ever thought it would. Yep. And so I think, you know, being in that space, it was, it was just such a magical moment for everybody. I mean, you know, we met Josh Koppelman when he was like, before he had raised his first, first round, we introduced Josh to his first institutional LP, right? Like it's, it was such a special moment there with people and personalities and ecosystem that was just like really starting to coalesce and everyone was like, we needed each other. Mm-hmm. It wasn't competition. Like if I wanted to do a million dollar round, I couldn't do a million dollar round. We had to syndicate it with people. I know. I loved, I actually, so I, I, I was there for the tail end of that at Betaworks. Yeah, that's right. And that was one of the things that I actually, that was actually one of the things that I, as a very naive new investor at Betaworks, mm-hmm. who didn't know anything really, um, that was one of the things that I found when I showed up that was most encouraging yeah. because it, it's kind of seemed like that from the outside. Yeah. Like, you know, I was a founder before that. Right. And it seemed like, oh, maybe all these investors, they kind of collaborate and they like do do the investments together. And it seemed like a really just interesting, fun yeah. time. And then I got to Betaworks and it really was that, at least for like a year or two. Okay. What was you the know, experience where you really This was felt like 2000. Uh, you know, 10. Okay. Which yeah. was kind of the tail end, I think, of that period. But, oh, it was like we found an investment that we loved and, you know, Lair would do a couple hundred or OATV right. or SV Angel mm-hmm. or uh, even Thrive at that time was right. writing very small checks. And it really was this, um, hey, we found something awesome. Let's share it with all our so, friends yeah, and all do it together. Did, totally. The time has passed for that now. Um, okay, I want to get to oh, I want to okay. get to indie so indie VC because yeah. that's really what I'm most fascinated by now. And honestly, watching you guys build that thing from from afar over the last four years has been really inspiring. Actually, oh, thank you. how the hell did you leave this amazing thing OATV yeah. that you were building and decide to go pivot? Pretty big pivot, right? Maybe. Or start a new thing, or I, I don't know how. How did you decide to to move from OATV to? So I think, I, yeah, I mean, I think that um, and is it's, le- it's the less same it, partners. Yeah, it's, it's less of a pivot than okay, it looks just like. a, a new yeah. thing. So it's not a separate fund. There is no NDVC entity, if that makes sense. There's no NDVC LLC or LP. Okay, so, so OA, it's still it is the same OATV firm. fund for. Okay, so we did. Mark and I raised OATV mm-hmm. funds one through three together. Mm-hmm. We were partners. I. Yep. I honestly can't say enough good about my partner, Mark. He's someone who flies so far under the radar, but he is, if you would have asked me when we started that we would have the connection and partnership that we wow. had 15 years later. That's amazing. It was, it was really, really special. And to be yeah. part of it from like literally a shotgun wedding, it's just been amazing. So with that's fun, special. It it's is. Probably, that's and rare. Very Probably, rare. Yeah, and I think yeah. we both acknowledge that. Yeah. That you know, yeah. and but to your point, it took a lot of work to yeah. make it work. Yeah. Um, but we were just both incredibly committed yeah. to making OATV something, you know, that that had an impact. And so essentially what started happening was maybe probably seven or eight years ago, I started like seeing I started writing about funny things. Like I wrote a post about the monoculture in VC and what was happening there and how like we weren't taking enough risks and how people were kind of circling around, you know, know, or that everybody looks like you and me, right? Mm -hmm. We're two white guys with a little bit of scruff and like, 
that the whole ecosystem was starting to become monochromatic. So that was seven or eight years ago. And I just started recognizing these kind of not necessarily massive opportunities, but just like, again, just starting to kind of connect dots around what was going on. Yeah. I then started to see like really interesting companies that were coming up that weren't, they were deciding to not raise money at all. And, you know, companies like MailChimp yeah. or, you know, 37 Signals. Basecamp. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, Basecamp or, you know, even Kickstarter. Like Perry had a really interesting mm-hmm. relationship to investors and his idea of what investments should do. And so I started to see this nuance and, you know, um, started to think that maybe there might be this, you know, this wave of second and third time founders who once you've been exposed, like there were, there was a whole new generation of entrepreneurs getting exposed to the venture model for the first time. And so I thought there, like, if you're not under the hood, if you haven't run a venture funded company or haven't run a venture fund, you don't really understand a lot of the nuance that goes on and a lot of the, not only the mechanics, but the incentives that are driving behavior. And so a lot of which is, Probably counterintuitive for it, it would be counterintuitive for lots of founders, of initially. Yeah. yeah, and so my yeah, I started to think like, oh, there's going to be this next wave of founders who are going to come back to do another company, and they're going to want something different. Like right now, the startup community has one product; they don't have yeah, you know, they have venture debt, but that's a but venture debt is tied to venture capital, right? Or yep. No one really thinks about bank loans and that like there's a lot of risk in taking those. And so, but we have one product to support an entire entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so And that product tends to lead to binary outcomes. When we started seed investing, the whole idea was optionality, right? But as you and I know, once you're in it, it's all about binary outcomes. Yeah. And so like the whole idea that you're going to raise a small round and get profitable or raise a small round and get acquired. And that's going to be a meaning. I mean, we returned 70% of our first fund on one acquisition. That was a $120 million acquisition, right? Like that's a rounding error today. Like, I don't even know if that would get picked up in mm-hmm. TechCrunch now, mm-hmm. that kind of outcome. But for us and the way that fund and that strategy was architected, that was a meaningful outcome mm-hmm. for us. Right. That's totally gone now. Everything now, and you probably feel it, and I feel, I was feeling it at the time, which was, I have to take an idea, an entrepreneur, a priori, before I have a product, before I have anything, and determine whether this entrepreneur is going to build a billion-dollar company or not. Like, that's the filter. I, I couldn't say, like, oh, this is interesting, let's explore it. Yep. Right? Yep. Like, we, like you know, I think I said this at one point. And then point. at every step of the way, every round of financing... You're constantly thinking about, okay, how can we 10x this another time and another time and, and how another do we keep time? telling this bigger yeah. and bigger yeah. story so yeah. more and more people yeah. believe that it's going to be that, yeah. which is fine. It's just, I don't think that, you know, I was going and telling that story to the entrepreneurs that I work with. I was deploying dollars that way. And then I was coming home to Utah and I was looking around and they do it totally differently there, hmm. right? In Utah, you've got you know Qualtrics, right? Which this year got bought by SAP yep. for eight billion. Ryan bootstrapped it to forty million. Like he was throwing off forty million in cash before he took any money from Sequoia and Excel, yeah. right? And when I would talk to those entrepreneurs, they would say, "If I had raised a seed round, I wouldn't be in business." Wow, right? Like there was something yeah. about living yeah. through that process of yeah. getting, you know. Understand the levers of your business, getting the ground truth of it that you can't hide from 
when you're swimming in venture capital, like when you have to be profitable, when you have to generate revenue, it just creates a fundamentally different kind of company. And so I looked at that and I said, okay, these entrepreneurs are either choosing not to or don't even know that venture capital is an option and they are advantaged because of it. Hmm. I'm now in a world where it's literally what most people are thinking and talking about 24 seven, hmm. right? Like we're to the point where we've kind of lost the plot, right? Like venture capital is now the goal. It's not the fuel, right? Yep. I think Tim, Tim has this analogy of like a road trip isn't a tour of gas stations and we are in this kind of tour <laughs> of gas stations. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, half the conversations we, we have with founders feels like these days is just how to engineer to the next round. Well, it's interesting because when we kind of started to pull the covers back a bit on NDVC, a lot of people pointed us to notation. And so I was, you and I, I don't think we've ever had the chance to actually talk about why they were pointing us in your direction or what about the way we were talking or deploying capital resonated with what you guys were trying to build here. I think we, we started from similar places, mm. actually. I think we have gone down a more traditional path, for mm. better for better, for worse. Yeah. But our view is that if you can keep the funds relatively small, which is a whole other set of issues sure. in this market, yeah. but our first fund was eight, our, our current fund is 28, yeah. I don't think we'll get much bigger from here. Mm. You do have a lot of flexibility in terms of the outcomes that can move the needle. Right, yeah. So a hundred $100 million outcome is very significant for, you, for our sure. firm. Yep. And we don't we don't want to depart from that. Mm-hmm. So we want to give ourselves lots of optionality as investors to be able to work with and fund companies that can get to meaningful size but not billion dollar size. Yeah. Right. So th- that's our view on how to create flexibility across the companies that we work with. But we are still firmly in venture capital totally. land. Yeah. And I don't know how that evolved over time. What was interesting actually is I recently had a conversation with a founder about creating a capital efficient path to building a meaningful company without raising tons of capital. Yeah. And I made a misjudgment because the the thing that that founder wanted to hear was you can be the billion dollar Silicon Valley company. Right. And I I I thought I had this clever strategy Built up with that, that that we would work with the founder. We would give them, you know, uh, him a little bit of money. He make some progress. We could do these clever things to build the company to meaningful size. He just didn't want to hear it. Yeah. No, so I'm just curious to understand with NDVC as you've been building it out and telling that story yeah. around building companies without tons of venture. How do you tell that in this market that is all venture? <laughs> And I'm curious how you tell that to LPs and to Not founders. Well. <laughs> no, I think I think I mean I think what I appreciate about NDVC all the way down to the website yeah. is there's a point of view. Yeah. There's like a very specific point of view, like it or hate it. Yeah. And so I guess maybe that's how you do it, right? It's like you you that to a certain degree filters out the people that you're looking for. I think that's both right. LPs and founders. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that we had to come to terms with something really early on, which was there are a bunch of people who aren't our customers. Mm. If we have to explain in too much depth why it is what we're doing or why we think what we're doing is significant, you're just not our customer. Right. Like, 
there's a point at which so it like has to person, resonate person, with you at your core. The person that I was talking to, for example, you'd see it in their face. Yeah, they want to go out and at this just point. Like, I know, numbers. like, okay, yeah. great, go, like, yep. go do it. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And I think the challenge has been because of the burning unicorn head, because of some of the kind of points of view that we have and the messages we put out there, we get framed as like anti-venture capital or anti-startups. I think that's absolutely not right. The whole idea here, like the seed of it was when Andreessen raises their first fund, their strategy is 12 companies a year matter. They drive all the returns for our industry. Our job is to get into those 12. That number doesn't move. It kind of stays in that 12 to 15. Like you're seeing this kind of flood of IPOs right now. Yeah. But if you looked at vintage years, it's distributed, right? So if there's only 12 companies a year that matter, that suggests to me that there might be a whole lot of others that could get unlocked if they had a different, right? What is NDVC? So NDVC is a style of investing where we focus on getting companies to independence. So not needing to continue to raise venture capital. So, you know, as seed investors, a huge part of our job is funding companies, helping them hit fundable milestones and getting them funded again, right? It's how we make our money. That's how that company makes progress. It's really how we measure everything, right? But what that also introduces is this filter of what's fundable, Right. And so when you're making an investment decision at the earliest stages, you're having to decide, is this something I can sell yep. to Sandal Row? Like, is this someone that a traditional VC sure. is really going to understand, appreciate? Is this a category that's going to be in favor? So there's all this load that we put on ourselves and all this strain we put on what gets funding based on what's fundable. Right. And so, again, going back to that kind of monochromatic world, we end up in a situation where there's this explosion in a category. And if you're not in that category, you're not getting funded, right? There's an explosion of archetypes that get funded, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something we see. Like, the venture dollars go to the people who have always built billion-dollar companies that look like people who've built billion-dollar companies. That's the people who get funded. And so, NDVC, the idea was... What would change? What kinds of companies could you support? What kind of outcomes could you have? If the original dollars going in were designed and they were surrounded by a community of people who were focused on independence and profitability. Now, nothing in what we do or in how we structure things prevents them from raising money down the road. Mm-hmm. If they want to raise, you know, an, an ideal situation for some founders is to never raise money, to run a cash flow business, and to throw off millions a year in profit. Mm-hmm. Fine. We have a way because of the way we structure our investments so we can take a return out from that. Yep. And we can see multiples of our returns. And that's primarily revenue financing. So that that's a revenue share. Yep. That's right. Yep. And then there's, you know, but the other situation is like, do you know what happens to your cap table if you can skip a series A and go straight to a series B? Yeah. Like, do you even know like how mm. much more you own? I spend time with entrepreneurs all day who are raising series Bs and series Cs and own single-digit percentages of their business. Yeah. Yeah, we right? see it all the time. All the time. And so, you know, and then there's that and then there's that other piece, which is like, you know, Peter Thiel has that question of, like, what do you believe that no one else does or something like that? You know, I believe that if you focus on revenue and profits early, that actually sets a much better foundation to scale from than this, like, thrashing around, pivoting, trying to figure out stuff, right? Like, nothing gets you to ground truth closer and sooner than that. And so, and so we've kind of 
backed into designing a program and a funding vehicle for entrepreneurs who believe that, right? Like there's people who sit on the sidelines or even in Silicon Valley who look at that model and just say, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Like I get it from a, like, I get how it works. Like I'm not naive, but like, I don't get Right. I but like, that. why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? Or, <laughs> or I like, I understand the game that's on the field. I don't want to play that game. That's yeah. like, I can't win that game. Yeah. And so why don't I, like, I want to do my own thing. But when I tell people I want to do something differently, no one wants, like everybody only understands that one thing. And so we just wanted to create a space for people who felt a little misunderstood, who are in markets that weren't necessarily, you know, potentially out of favor or people who had been, had experienced venture before and wanted to experience it in a different way. They wanted the advantages of it, having the support structure, the networks, the access to all of that without all the overhead that tends to come with it now. Are you more, so uh, you just launched Indie V3, yeah. which as far as I understand is a kind of like the third revision of That's what right. Indie VC is yeah, and yeah. the terms and, yeah. and I guess ultimately the product that you offer to, to founders. Right. How do you feel about Indie VC on on the third version versus the first version? Oh, I am feeling better about it. Okay. Yeah. Like you're like, you're like, I'm tell- I'm dude, like, I have I'm all like, the scars. Like I had like, yeah. I, you know, I've, yeah. you want to get into like yeah. deep yeah. baggage and scars. Yeah. Like I've got plenty to share, yeah. but you know, I assume I, there were moments where enough people were like, "Dude, what are you? What are you doing?" Oh, we're like, uh, I'm not sure. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I think there are still things that we do or ideas that we have that people still don't get. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there are drivers of why we think it's important that are just barely starting to reveal themselves. Right? Like, you know, all this anti. Like, it's one thing to talk about funding monopolies; it's another thing to like see it playing out mm-hmm. and what it means. It's yeah. like, man, we've built an industry that like really wor- you know worships at the altar of that, and that's fine, and the returns are there for sure. But like, it might not be all great. It might not be all great. And there might be something about how we're funding these companies and incentivizing them that's pushing them in this direction early on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think- And that's the, the blitzscaling path. Well, I think it's I think it's like, you know, the like toxic version of, I mm. think there's probably toxic versions mm. of everything. Mm. Um, but I think there's a toxic version of blitzscaling that's really taken yeah. root. Yeah. And I think- Which is crush all your competitors and- you know, winner take all, and there's only one person left standing, and, and that's it, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I think I don't know. I mean, there, like I said, there are there are. When we started out on this NDVC exploration, it was to say, look, this feels like an emerging opportunity space, and I don't know that we have all the answers yet, and we will probably be hugely ham fisted in trying to figure it out. But if you'll give us some rope. We think there's a seed-sized opportunity sitting in a funding gap, right? The seed size, seed opportunity was angels to VCs. Mm-hmm. There was this huge gap. There wasn't anything happening in there. We think there's an interesting gap to explore between the boot, kind of militant bootstrapping founder mm-hmm. who's never going to raise money mm-hmm. and you know kind of throws a f- middle finger to everything that's going on in the startup world, a la Basecamp, a la Mailchimp, and like you know, the, the blitz scaling path. Yep. And that in the world that I was inhabiting as a seed investor, it was becoming clearer and clearer. Like we live in this blitz scaling camp and 
as much as I want to believe that there's optionality for entrepreneurs and there's mm-hmm. differences in our model, ultimately my business is driven my ab- by my ability to fund and scale your business, mm. right? And so you have incentives as a first-time manager to have a real breakout oh, yeah. hit. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. raised our f- second fund on yeah. the back of Foursquare. There's no question about it. Like, yep. we were doing great. It was an interesting space. OATV was a name. But that heat around Foursquare is what brought all the LPs. Yep. Yep. You know. Could you tell us about, well, one, I want to talk about a little bit about um, NDVC diversity. Yeah. You talk a little bit about it on, on the site, sure. and it's clear that it's significantly it's a, more diverse than yeah. traditional venture like we've talked about. And I'm just curious to hear kind of like one or two NDVC stories, um, particularly around founders yeah. um, that you work with that give you the encouragement that you're headed that you're heading in the right path because I, right. from afar it, it seems like you're heading in the right direction really that's awesome 100 percent. i'm so happy so, i hear that a lot but it's I'm hard so it's hard weeds, to it's know hard to like so i feel the same way about notation i feel like sometimes <laughs> people are like you guys are doing a great job and i'm like really it's really hard to know so i'm curious just to hear a couple stories that sure. um kind of like get you up in the morning you're like holy shit we i think we might be yeah. heading in the right direction let's yeah. do more of this you know i think the um so to your your first question was around diversity, and that was yeah. that was kind of surprising to me. It it certainly wasn't at the heart of what it was right, we were trying to do. Right. There, there was an element of it which was like, you know, obviously there's a certain kind of founder that's getting most of the funding, and if you remove that fundability out of that, or you or you know, kind of the fundability out of that equation, you could certainly take more risks on people or markets, right? That may not historically be in mm, vogue, yeah. right? But almost immediately after we launched there was this response, especially from female founders where it was like, this is how we think about building companies. Hmm. Like, wow. you know, I had an experience early on in my seed career where we had a female CEO raising a series B round. She had verbal on a term sheet from a top tier fund that I knew. And she went to pitch the partnership and she came back with no term sheet. Hmm. And so I called the partner and asked what's up? You know, like you were so hyped on this like weeks ago and now like nothing. And he said something along the lines of she's too salesy. She's too this, she's too that. And I stopped in mid sentence. And I said, you know, if you were talking about a male founder, all of those would be positives. Wow. But because it's coming from a female, like you're wildly uncomfortable with a woman who's confident, salesy, whatever you want to call it. And they backed out. So that always left this huge, like, mm. oh, wow, this is very real. Mm. We had that experience when we were trying to hire someone where, you know, I think a lot of people are experiencing it now, but we wrote about it seven or eight years ago, which was we were trying to hire someone and it was all male applicants. Mm. And so we had to be like really explicit in an invitation to women to apply. And it's just, you know, I, I have four daughters. I'm like surrounded by women all the time. And so I probably... And at times are either numb to it because it's right. so part of my world right. or hyper aware of it. Right. Right. And so I think I was not paying attention to it and it just smacked us upside mm-hmm. the head. Like for mm-hmm. people who are underrepresented mm-hmm. in venture and in startups, this is the perfect path, right? Wow. Like if you know your bar is going to be that much higher to clear, then why try to play the game that you already haven't been invited to play, hmm. right? Like why not play a different game until they can't ignore you? And so hmm. they, you know, like, so you ask for stories, right? One of the, 
one of the, the founders in our first group was a black female founder. She runs a business called The Shade Room, which is yep. a media company that's wildly out of favor. Hmm. It is a media company focused exclusively on black culture, like mm-hmm. her culture. Yeah. She loves it. She eats it. She breathes it. It's their celebrity. It's their music. It's their politics. It's everything. Yeah. And she, back then and probably now, doesn't know what White Combinator is. Right. She right. is not in the startup ecosystem at yeah. all. So she's yeah. someone who would have never Based had- where? In LA. Okay. And not in like, not in like Santa Monica. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> She's <laughs> not, she doesn't have the house <laughs> like, right next to Snapchat well, in Venice. So was, right? So this is four years ago. We started working with her. And at the time she was doing less than 10K a month in revenue. She was, you know, she had like 500,000 followers on Instagram. She had yeah. no real, you know, she didn't have a ton of reach, but she had buzz. People were paying yeah. attention to her. And so we started working with her four years ago. And I think last year she threw off four million in cash. Wow, cash! Wow, we gave her a hundred thousand dollars. She's wow. never spent wow a penny of our hundred thousand dollars. Wow, this year because of the way we structure our investments, we have this ability to get a return out through cash flow. Normally, it would be like a revenue share. Mm-hmm. She has so much cash. She's just like, let me just pay you. <laughs> just please <laughs> so take she my- cut us a check. So, oh my you know, God. That, that whole first cohort of companies was a million dollars. It was a million dollars, and she sent us back 500K. Holy we still shit. have equity. You know, we and still all the have other ones. In her company. Oh, wow. So we still have upside in her business. So wow. we have a, you know, so from a return standpoint, 5X, cash on cash. I think it was a 60, 70% IRR. Realized return. Wow. But for a founder who now is like, she probably turned down 20 to 30 million in term sheets from top tier funds just wow. last year. Wow. So that was, I mean, that's when we started, amazing. that was the hope is that we would find right. people like her who would be overlooked and that she can now control her own destiny, right? Like if she were on, if she were, can you imagine trying to pitch no. a, that media no. based happen. on Instagram? No. Not gonna yeah. happen. Yeah. But now, you know, I think, I think she'll be the next BET. Like, I think she'll be, she, she's already bigger than TMZ and Buzzfeed and all these people across social media. She will be, but she'll do it on her own gas. Like she's not going to take dilution. She's not going to have to go through all the stuff you're seeing vice and Buzzfeed and all these others go through because they got over their skis or do things that they have to do because of, you know, the kind of return hurdle expectations. She's got, 20 years to, you know, we've already got a return. We, yeah. like, everything yeah. for us is upside yeah. now. And so she can take five years, 10 years, whatever, right. to build exactly the kind of business she wants to build. I love that. That's an amazing story. We should end there. <laughs> I wish we could keep going, oh but gosh. I promised you we would end there. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Seriously, it really is an inspiration for us. So thank you for doing this and see you soon. Thanks. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. 
We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP.